Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Drive Through HR. I am your host, Crystal Miller Lay, and I am joined today by one of my favorite people. I would like to introduce you to, if you don't already know her, Robin Erickson. Uh, Robin, I kind of believe that no one can introduce um, someone as well as that person can themselves. So uh, let me segue over to you and say, do you mind introducing yourself? And then we'll talk a little bit about the show. I don't mind at all. Otherwise, it sounds like you're reading from a canned bio. So I can sound like I'm reading from my Ken bio. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. I'm Robin Erickson. I'm a principal researcher at the conference board in human capital. I've been there for the last two and a half years. Before that, I spent five years at Burson by Deloitte as uh, their vice president for talent acquisition. And I did a lot of engagement work there. And before that, I spent 20 years as a management consultant in the talent space for multiple consulting firms. And uh, my thought leadership spans talent acquisition, talent mobility, employee engagement, experience and retention, and job satisfaction, and, uh, and, and whatever else comes my way. So thanks again for having me. Oh, of course. So if I had to sum you up in a sentence, I would say Robin knows HR in the world of work. Would that be fair? That would be fair. At least most, most parts of HR. Fair enough. It does. It seems to grow, right? Like HR, it, it, it's neat. I just had to write a paper on like the evolution of, of HR and then another paper on like a specific subject matter. But, but when I look at the evolution of HR and how it's grown and the definition of it from like the last 80 years, it's really fascinating to see how it's, it's some ways it's grown and matured and in other ways, like it really hasn't. So, you know, it's, but that's probably true of all segments of business, right? So well, that's true. And at least we're getting two titles like chief talent officer and chief HR officer in some organizations rather than staffing director. So, hey, we're making progress. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, never as fast as I like, but I am not a particularly patient person. So, <laughs> you know, um, but it is neat to see more of the C-level roles in HR. Um, so if you're just now joining us and you don't really know drive through HR, we are the internet's longest running HR talk show. Um, we've been running consecutively since 2010 and we're built on one simple premise and that's asking our guests the questions of what's keeping you up at night. Like that's it, that's what the show is based on. Now, we do try to keep it in the context of HR though it doesn't always live there. Uh, so I guess the right thing to do right now, Robin, would be to ask you, what's keeping you up at night? So uh, what's keeping me up at night is is the fact that I, we have some new survey research here at the conference board, and it shows that employee well-being is deteriorating. And before I tell you more about that specific data point, why don't I tell you about the series of reports that we've done and, why, and why it might keep me up at night. Um, because understanding how organizations treat their employees during organizational crises is a passion of mine. My PhD dissertation focused on the engagement and retention of downsizing survivors after 9-11 and the resulting recession. Um, during my time as a consultant at Deloitte, I was able to write about how organizations were treating their employees during the Great Recession in 2009 to 2012. And I've had the opportunity to lead a lot of the human capital research here at the conference board around the effects of COVID-19 on employees. So basically the third organizational crisis uh, pandemic, so to speak, if you wanna look at it that way, um, that I've actually been able to, to research. And um, 
the report that I'm gonna talk about today is actually the third in a series of three reports. So last April in 2020, at the relative beginning of COVID-19, the conference board was one of the first organizations to do uh, a full survey about how human capital functions were responding to COVID-19. And we did that first survey of HR leaders in April and published the results in May. And if you know anything about survey research, you know that that's not a long time. Uh, so we, I think we set a new land speed record here at the conference board for that. Um, and then six months later, we realized that COVID-19 was not going to be short-lived. So we did a second survey of HR leaders in September and published the report, the second report in October. And then uh, this year we wanted to sort of commemorate uh, the reimagined workplace a year later. That's the name of the report actually. And um, we published the third survey in April and we had 231 human capital leaders respond and then published the third report at the end of May. And so in terms of uh, the deteriorating employee well-being and what's keeping me up at night, we found that uh, it productivity has been increasing over the last year um, and um, actually doubling in terms of the, we asked organizations how their productivity was in April, 2020 and 23% said that productivity had increased. Um, and in, in April 2021, that number had gone up more than doubled, actually went up to 59%. So, and so let's pause there, if that's okay. Okay, sure. So we talk, when we talk about productivity, did, did you get into how productivity is measured? Like what was considered productivity? Um, is, it, is it just attendance? Is it, you know, like what, what makes productivity? Was that defined? So no, it was self-reported. And, and actually at the beginning of the pandemic, I think that HR leaders probably were less confident about the productivity numbers as COVID had just started. But by the time we asked the same question in September and the same question in April of 2021, I think organizations knew whether or not they were gonna make their numbers um, and that HR leaders would have been involved in those conversations. Okay, that's fantastic. Uh, so. You know, when we look at when we look at work and productivity, one of the things that always kind of niggles in the back of my head is like, what is this based on? And are we all kind of working off of a common definition? And so much of HR doesn't work off of a common definition. So uh, we do have data that employees have been working more hours, and we have to understand that the context of the working more hours actually is 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 everything that was going on last year, right? Um, People were working, many, many employees were working remotely. They had their laptops on, on their dining room tables and they couldn't go anywhere. So it was easy to work. Um, there was also people who were concerned about keeping their jobs as we had a financial crisis in many places. And, um, you know, this level of performance might be unsustainable because when we look at the employee well-being numbers, and this is what I wanted to, to talk to you about what's keeping me up at night. Um, 76% of the organizations who responded to our survey said that the number of employees who identified as being burned out had increased. 72% mm -hmm. of the organizations who responded to our survey said that the number of employees who sought mental health support had increased. 58% um, of those responding organizations said that hours worked had increased. And 
55% of those organizations said that work-life balance decreased and that the number of vacation days used decreased at 60% of those organizations. And so, you know, my concern is that organizations don't realize that while the productivity they're experiencing may be better with remote work, um, that it's really coming at a cost uh, to their employee well-being. Yeah, I, and I mean, I think that is concerning. It's something that we should be thinking about, particularly when you think about the overworking effects on physical and mental health. Like the CDC has shared some some significant research around the impact of physical overexertion and mental overexertion. Uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, the American Heart Association came out with research that showed that working late hours, working long hours actually led to an increase in heart attacks and deterioration of heart health. So, you know, um, there okay, so hold on one second. I just say I have another CDC data point for you. Oh, great. Um, the prevalence of anxiety and depressive disorders in the United States in September 2019 was 8%, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. By August of 2020, it was 36.4%. And by February of 2021, it was 41.5%. And so what that's looking at are the diagnosed cases, sorry, the diagnosed cases of people within the United States who have uh, anxiety or, or depression of some sort. So that number went from 8% to over 40% um, by this February. And I'm sure it could have gone even higher since then. So um, yes, employee well-being is definitely, I think, a concern. Yeah, it, it's there's so much associated with it, and I mean, if you don't, if you don't know um, data points around this beyond what we talked about from from a listener perspective, if you're not really sure what those impacts are, but you see this in your organization, I would highly recommend you do a simple Google search of health impacts of overworking, and you will see more news articles um, and more scholastic research around the impacts of that. Um, 2015's Harvard Health was really um, an interesting study that, that they did, had looked at, I guess they had done multiple studies around the um, correlation between young professionals who were dying and the amount of work that they were doing. So I think it's um, like over the only, only the overworked die young or something to that extent which is obviously a little bit of a leading headline because that's not necessarily true, but, but um, it's, it is interesting. It's like, there's a real impact to overworking and we've done a lot of it. And to your point, part of it is just as simple as like when your computer is on your dining room table, it's hard to escape it. Right. And you feel that responsibility to all of these things, especially if your company is going through layoffs or you just turn on the TV and see the millions of people that are on unemployment. Correct. You know, and I don't know that the average worker, even the average professional um, looks at like really breaks down the, okay, well, what percentage of these people are, you know, at the same level as I am or in the same function as I am. I think we just see the numbers and think like, I need to do more. I need to make sure that I'm safe. I need to make sure that my company is safe and all of these things, right? We feel a shared responsibility to the health of an organization. And that is kind of fascinating when you think about it, because does the organization share the same level of feeling and responsibility for the worker? Well, and a good way to find out if an organization feels that way is we actually look to see 
what percentage of organizations were surveying employees about some of these issues that were very relevant to employees. And we found that yes, most organizations that responded to our survey have surveyed employees in the last six months or more frequently about multiple issues. And um, we actually found that between, um, depending on the topic, um, between nine to 22% of the companies were actually doing continuous listening by surveying employees monthly or more frequently. And that's actually something that um, I researched with a Deloitte team from Belgium. We have a series of three reports on continuous listening and I'll send you the links to those. Um, if that's something that organizations are interested in. Um, and I'll tell you, I think it should be something that organizations should be interested in because um, we did another analysis and found that when organizations actually surveyed their employees, they found different things. So for example, 18% more organizations identified increased burnout when they surveyed employees about that topic than those that didn't survey. That's pretty significant. 22% more organizations identified increased hours worked, which we know is incredibly significant because of increased burnout. And 23% more identified decreased work-life balance. So also very, very important for organizations to know what's happening with their employees. And on the flip side, those organizations that were surveying, 22% fewer of them identified decreased employee engagement and morale. And so what that tells us is that employee engagement and morale is higher at those organizations that are surveying their employees and actually doing something with that data. So there's, there's a causal link between the two. Definitely. That's interesting. So when we look at all of this, if I'm an employer that, that maybe hasn't been doing continuous listening, um, that, or even maybe hasn't been surveying the way that I should, what should I take from what I'm, from what I'm reading? Like, so we'll share your research with our listeners, which is, we're really excited to be able to do. And thank you for sharing it with us. Um, so I guess the question that I always run through and sorry for hanging with me as I try to articulate it, but the question that always hits my mind is like, if if a company isn't doing those things, like one, you know, are they going to recognize that this means that they should? And two, where do you start, right? You can look at these surveys and you can look at this data and go like, okay, now how do I action against this in my organization? Great question. And uh, we actually lay out how organizations should start continuous listening programs in the three reports that we put out, um, sort of step-by-step. And, um, you know, obviously you need to have uh, leadership support and buy-in. And you're also gonna have to make the decision of whether or not you think you can do it by yourself as an organization. Can you implement the surveying or do you need to work with a partner? And so there's, there's definitely decisions that have to be made there and pros and cons of each approach. And that makes sense. You know, so anecdotally, I would say that, you know, some of the clients that I work with on a regular basis, not all of them do significant employee listening or even continuous feedback, but they have recognized like the toll that just the pandemic itself is taking on people. Right. So you've got two different levels here. One, the, the, personal toll that this takes on people 
outside of the context of their jobs, because there is that. And then two, the impact that it has at work. And so when you're, when you're setting up care programs or even just trying to set business goals, I think you have to still take those things into account. And it's easy to say like the pandemic is ending and it's over, which by the way, it's not, but you know, like it, it, I don't mean like it's not, it's not ending. I'm sure at some point it will, but it's not over yet. And so, you know, even though so many more Americans and so many more global citizens have received vaccines, like there's still a lot going on in the world. India is just ravaged with COVID. And there are a lot of people, whether they're directly related to them or not, that know someone that works in India. And if you know someone that works in India, then they, they know someone that's been impacted by this, right? And so there's still, I think, where I'm going to all of this, a lot of, of mental stress and wear and tear and baggage that we're all carrying with us. So just because we're all getting to a place where we can start having conversations about going back to work at some point or starting to transition back in the workplace doesn't mean that the mental health needs have subsided. So has your research like looked at what employees need or you know, what, where did y'all go with that? So um, I've actually, I did a lot of research on this topic last year. I wrote a report on um, the importance of resilience and I wrote a report on um, suggestions for organizations during a crisis for things they could do around mental health and well-being. And so uh, again, I can send you the links to those reports. Yes. But, um, it's really important for leaders to communicate transparently um, it's really important for uh, there to be one-on-one -on -one communication. Um, mental health is something that's really hard for a lot of employees to talk about. In fact, when I look at the, the numbers around burnout that we have, I often wonder, you know, we're, we're surveying human capital leaders and uh, how often do, have you wanted to talk to your boss about whether or not you're burned out? It's not something we like to talk about. So. Um, I do believe that the human capital leaders know that the uh, the number of employees seeking mental health support has increased. I think that's probably really a very close to you know normal number for most organizations. With seventy two percent saying seventy two percent of the organizations saying that the number of employees who sought mental health support increased. But I have another figure for you that goes into this whole equation which is that our survey also found that the culture had changed in 49% of the organizations that responded to our survey. And on the face of it, 49%, yeah, it's almost 50%. It might not sound like such a big number, but when you think about the fact that culture transformation takes on average two to three years, a team of consultants, a lot of leadership buy-in, millions of meetings, hours and hours, of time spent creating change management programs and communication strategies. Massive communication. All to, exactly, all to move the needle on organizational culture. Uh, the fact that in this last year, it's changed at almost 50% of the organizations is pretty remarkable. And so um, I'll give you a little tease for another report that's coming out uh, later this month. And that is looking at how organizations that thrived during the pandemic actually reshaped their employee experience and their uh, organizational culture. And so we- It really, 
it is fascinating when you think about like, you can start to destabilize your entire company by, by moving your cultural needle, needle, so to speak, more than I think it was like a 5% change was safe. Anything more than that, you had um, risk of disruption. If you were to move your needle more than 15% in any given quarter, you're looking at things like business disruption, um, erosion of employee trust, like all of these things. So for so many companies to say, yes, our culture has changed. Um, that's, that's interesting. Was it intentional? Was it unintentional? Do we have any kind of insight into that? We don't, but, uh, we do know what those organizations that actually were thriving because back in September, we looked at those organizations that had high productivity and high employee well-being, and we actually interviewed seven of those. So, um, I'm really excited to be able to share that with everyone toward the end of June. I'm really excited about that. And you know, that means that we're having you back on in July, right? Like you get that. <laughs> I would love to come. And do you remember you were just mentioning disruption about yes. the culture changing and, and the disruption? Um, there, there, it's, there's not disruption just from culture change right now. We actually have a lot of disruption from the fact that we have a historic labor shortage right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's very concerning for many organizations. And oh, that's sure. and expensive. So oh, it's very expensive. I mean, I literally saw a ban uh, what are those banners called? A billboard. I saw a billboard on the side of the highway that said cybersecurity skills question mark, name your own salary. Um, and that's literally um, for for essential jobs, either in the office and professional services category of workers or in the industry and manual services workers. But um, you know, we we found in our survey that 80% of the organizations with mostly industry and manual services workers say it's difficult to find qualified workers. Um, 60% of the organizations with mostly professional and office workers said that they find it difficult to find workers. And um, we saw similar numbers around retention. We saw. Uh, 49% of the employers of mostly industry and manual services workers said retention was difficult. And 28% of the employers of mostly professional and office workers said that uh, they find retention difficult. And I think it's only going to get worse because as well, I so Oh, sorry, if you don't mind. Um, so, so I have a thought there. When we went through the recession, and, and I think they had went back and surveyed the rec- or looked at the, the numbers from the recession before. But when we went through the last recession, you saw a ton of divorces coming out of the recession, right? Like, because they, could, they couldn't get divorced during the recession. So they hung through it. And then they were like, bye. So the divorce rate shot up. Especially after living, after being together 24 seven because of lockdowns, right? Oh, well, no, this is the last recession. So, but, but okay. yes, we're seeing is like, I don't think they have all the data for the pandemic yet because it's not actually over. So I think we'll see that in a couple of years, but yeah, I, I know that that like pulse type surveys and short, short span surveys and um, like analysis has looked at it. Yeah, we're seeing an increase in divorces again, right? But, um, or at least the number of filings. And so, but so the last recession, the, the divorce rate shot right up, uh, way up. And I kind of think the same thing holds true with jobs, right? So whenever we're in a situation where we feel like, we have to stay here. We are forced to stay in this role. Like it's not safe to move or whatever the, the case may be. As soon as you start to feel that psychological safety again, like everything gets judged in a different way. <laughs> and we see so I have data that shows that crystal. If you think of an X, nice. 
okay? And okay. unemployment up until this, up until COVID, this, this number was true, okay? So as unemployment went down, voluntary turnover went up. And the statistic for those of you who are numbers nerds um, is 0.96. That, that type of correlation doesn't happen very often. Now it's negative because one is going down and one is going up. Right. I actually think that COVID might vary that a little bit. So I have to wait a little bit longer to get those numbers and run that correlation number again. But um, yes, you are absolutely correct that as unemployment goes down and people feel safe, psychologically safe to take a risk to move to another organization, because when you do take a risk when you switch jobs and you have to know that if it doesn't work out, there's someplace else to go after that, right? Yeah. Um, voluntary turnover goes up. And so that's why I think you know, right now, all the so the economy, every part of the economy is trying to come back at the same time. And so that's part of what's causing our shortage of laborers. The other part is that so many people got laid off at the beginning of COVID and they just haven't rejoined the workforce. They're right. figuring out how to either live on less money or they've made decisions. You, you've heard um, the research around how we're losing so many women to the mm -hmm. workforce because they're having to choose between their jobs or their careers and their kids. So I'm hoping some of this will stabilize in the fall when you know kids are back in the school, um, not just doing school, but they're back actually in the, the physical school location and that there is childcare. Um, but it'll be really interesting to see what happens this fall. Well, I think some of that is gonna be uh, um, employer flexibility. Right. Like, so if COVID taught us anything uh, from an employment standpoint, as employers, what we really should have learned about this is, you know, not only are people res resilient, businesses can be resilient and we can move and flex and bend and still be able to meet our objectives. We just have to trust in our people to do it. And, and when we do, they do. So, you know, Boeing I think is a great example of that, right? They've invested so many tens of millions of dollars into office space and, and all of these things. And, you know, you learn the funniest thing from your Uber drivers, right? But, but um, our Uber driver, um, I say Uber, I think it was probably actually Lyft, but um, our, our driver was, uh, is an engineer at Boeing. And, and so once we got past the like, okay, you're an engineer at Boeing, why are you doing ride shares? I mean, the answer is he was tired of being in his house. So he, he did that to get out because it was a way that he could safely get out of his house. I thought that was kind of fascinating, but, but beyond that, um, the, we were talking about like Boeing's shift in mentality about being at work and prior to COVID they were somewhat flexible. You could do a couple of days a week out of the office, no big deal. But more than that, my eyebrows started to go up. And now they're like, yeah, we're going to get rid of building leases because we don't need them. You know, and so we went back and forth a little bit on like, what does that say to like your manufacturing floor and to the, the people that are assembling things that can't do that? Like, do, does it make them feel um, resentment or, you know, do they, they encourage it and you know, where are they at? And for the most part, like they're at it. If they could be home, they would too, but they understand they can't, right? And so like by and large for Boeing, what they've gotten out of it is like, we don't need as much space. And I think that's the right mentality to take if that's what your employees want. But it all hinges around what do your employees want and going back to what you're talking about, like you have to first ask your employees to know. Yes. Well, the key word that I learned recently 
is optionality. Are you going to give your employees the option of whether or not they return to the workplace or if they um, are going to have to uh, stay remote? And I'll tell you, there's, there's, there's information on both sides of that. Um, in our survey, we found that more than 70% of the organizations that we were surveyed, they said they're planning to reopen the workplace between May and October of this year. And so they're beginning to see the, a light at the end of this very long COVID-19 tunnel. Um, but um, we're in the media, we're reading that it's the leadership of organizations who want their employees to return to the workplace and that employees aren't crazy about the idea of going back. And I, and I don't, that, that's not the case for all employees. I think there's, there's also some research that's saying that uh, younger employees, people just joining the workforce, um, they, they wanna go to the workplace so they can learn about everything that's available, right? Remote work works well for those of us who've had our career for a number of years and can uh, know, and know what we're doing and like what we're doing and are planning to keep doing it, right? But if you're uh, trying to grow and build your skills, you might want to, you know, sort of see what else is out there. Maybe. I mean, maybe. So it's, it's interesting. I read that too. And I was like, oh, okay. So I talked to my, my youngest daughter who just graduated from Mizzou this year and she started working with uh, Amanda Heights marketing firm. Um, so, so once I get past that, my daughter's working for someone else's marketing firm as I own one, like <laughs> it's actually probably a really healthy thing. The, um, so we were talking back and forth and she's like, yeah, you know, somebody referred me to this job that's inside of an office. And I said, oh, you know, how does that feel? Because that's, I know that's different than what you're, what you're experiencing now. And she's like, mom, I can't even imagine going into an office every day. Like, why would I do that? Like, I know I can work now without it. So why would I do that? So I, I think, you know, and that just brought me back to now, I wanted to go back and find that survey to see what was their sample size. Right. And so, and where is it at? Because I think some of it is, is a regional location as well. If you're born and, and bred in a major metropolitan area, you know, Baltimore, New York city, Washington, DC, LA, like your, your whole perspective of work centers around an office building. Right. So, so in those areas, it might be and Chicago might be the same. It might be that, you know, you see work as being, I need to be inside of an office to be able to do these things. If you don't have the experience to know that you don't for the most part. Right. But if that's all they were surveying, surveying, then I think that's going to skew that data, right? Where, you know, suburban workers, um, even in early careers may have a very different perspective from it because they've seen their parents work remotely or, you know, they've been working remotely as they've left school. So I, I'm fascinated by all of it, but I think a lot of it depends on who you talk to. No. And I think we're, I think it's basically like the great remote experience. I mean, our survey showed that before COVID, 70, over 70% 70 of the organizations um, had less, had less than 10% of their workforce remote. Okay. And the, the opposite is true now over 70% of the organizations surveyed have 40% or more of their employees working remotely. So it's like a pendulum, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like right now we're in the middle of this remote, um, this great remote experience, experiment, sorry, this great remote experiment, because we don't know if some of the, uh, if it's, we, we, we don't have the data that shows yeah. whether or not it's working remotely that's causing the issues with deteriorating employee well-being, or is it the fact that we were surveying during a pandemic, during financial crisis, during supply chain shortages, 
during all the social and race, political racial unrest that we've had in this country in the last year. It's, it's been a tough year for us all. So it'll be really interesting to see where that pendulum finally comes back to rest. I don't, I don't think it'll ever go all the way back up to where nobody, almost nobody worked remotely. I think it will stay with a lot of people working remotely. And actually the conference board has predicted, um, we, we did it uh, a year ago in our first survey that remote work would probably be the most significant organizational legacy of COVID-19. And so it'll be really interesting to see how that, how that plays out. Well, and I think if you pair that with, so it's an interesting time for this to have occurred, right? Because it, what it did, it has um, and is overlaying a serious shift in the United States around um, social justice issues and social belonging and, and really psychological safety, workplace dignity. Like there's a lot going on outside of work that is shifting the way that we view what's acceptable in treatment of self and others inside of work, right? And so when we look at remote work specifically, and I had this conversation with Kathy Misseldine of um, Southeast Trans last week, she, um, she and I were talking about vaccination and the requirement of vaccination and coming back into the workplace. And she's like, you know, one of the things that we have to look at is what is our population makeup? And if we're trying to force vaccination on a vaccine hesitant population, like, are we really caring for them in the context of their, their dignity and their well-being? Like you have to meet people where they are. And I think that also holds true for how we work, right? Particularly when you're talking about um, professional employment, right? And so, and as opposed to unskilled labor, uh, not that you don't have to meet them where they are. Please don't send in stuff to drive through. That is not what I'm saying. But what I, what I am saying is that when you look at exempt employees and, and even the litmus test around what makes them exempt, some of that is the autonomy to be able to do your jobs, right? And so like to be able to just fulfill your responsibilities. And so if we have to trust them to be able to do the responsibilities, why do we care about where they do it? Like, what, what does it actually matter? If they're getting their job done, what does it actually matter? And so we were talking through that you know, you together know in terms of, oh yeah, please. My theory, is, my theory is that the reason why leaders and managers want their employees back in the workplace is because they don't know how to trust their employees to get their work done. And they're yeah. afraid that they're at home not working. And um, I think they need to switch the thinking, which is what are the, what are the KPIs and are the employees meeting those KPIs? But I also know that organizations need to invest some money and time and teaching everyone how to be a good virtual employee. If that's going to be part of an organization's value proposition, that they're going to have that optionality and let people choose if they work remotely or they work from the, work from the workplace, then they've gotta be training people. Because think of all the people who've taken a new job in the last 15 months, they've never set foot in the workplace, they've never shook their manager's hand, and they don't know their colleagues other than seeing them on video. And there's, unless you know how to uh, successfully build relationships from a virtual uh, workplace, uh, you're not gonna do it. And I know that because I've been virtual for most of the last 20 years and um, it takes an investment of time to get to know people. And that, that investment pays off in the long run, but you, you, you can't just be on a meeting with somebody and expect that you're gonna have a closeness with them 
because that closeness usually comes from going to lunch or having coffee or meeting by the water cooler and, Mm -hmm. you know, saying, Hey, you look like you're having a rough day. You know, what, what's going on? And it's those sorts of things that, that, that that doesn't happen naturally on zoom calls. Yeah. And I, I think that's a fair point. You know, um, I think to that end of what you're talking about, though, there's another investment that companies need to make. And so when you talk about um, managers and leadership, you know, being afraid that people aren't doing their work, part of the reason they're afraid of that is because we promote doers into leaders and we don't actually train them on how to be leaders. And so all the way up from a first line manager to CEOs that I, you know, I know you, I and other people interact with, uh, not any one specific person, but I mean, we could probably all point to a CEO who were like, oh, that person is now at the level of their own incompetence from the standpoint of managerial leadership because we don't teach it, right? We, we, we give a couple of book recommendations and go, go read this and then everything should be good, right? But, but truly, I think there needs to be an investment on how to lead people that you don't see every day. And, and if we put as much investment into how to, how to train and develop better leaders as we did into the thought that we put around, did this person actually put in a full eight hours today? My guess is the latter problem would get solved. Exactly. Well, because they, people could learn how to trust their employees and yeah. be able to offer that flexibility, right? I mean, there, there is no shortage of leadership books. In fact, I used to joke about it, it was the leadership book of the month. Um, but um, Anybody who's interested in really strong information on leadership, check out, you know, get yourself a subscription to Harvard Business Review, and they've got something on leadership every single month. And I used to teach a class on leadership and decision making. And um, I, the, the HBR was my source of uh, my source of very interesting perspectives on how to be a good leader. Yeah, you know, we were um, <laughs> again same Uber driver. Uh, or lift, whatever it was, but, but our same driver to the airport, when we were talking, um, you know, I'm in the process of getting my MBA. And so somehow I, I think he was asking like what I did or whatever. And it was not because I had like 50 books with me. It's all I had in luggage was books. And I was like, Oh, I've got a paper due. So I have all these books. Da, 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 da. And he's like, you know, I'm getting my MBA. And he's like, Oh yeah. I'm about to go back and get a master's as well. And I was like, Oh, that's great. He's like, well, I already have my MBA. Um, but you know, I'm in vice president of engineering, whatever. So I, but I, I did just recently get promoted. And so I'm going back to get a master's in HR. And I was like, are you, you going to go work in HR? And he said, no, I, I manage people. Like I need to understand how to do that. That's fascinating. <laughs> that's really awesome. And that should probably be required for everyone at your level. That's great, man. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just, and I think that's what kicked it for me was just like, oh, you know, we don't, we don't make that kind of investment. It's, it's completely voluntary for people, whether they want to do that or not, but yet they, they have a, a number of people underneath them that it's involuntary for them in the experience they're going to receive. So when we look at worker experience, I mean, I think when you look at burnout and well-being and all of the things that are in your report, there's this plethora of things to look at, not the least of which is how have you prepared management to be able to manage these people. And to lead, yeah. I mean, there's an old adage that says employees don't leave organizations, they leave managers. I don't think mm-hmm. that's true all the time, but if, if you've got a leader or manager who can't keep a team underneath himself or her, herself, uh, take a look at that 
person's leadership skills. And uh, you might find out that the, the problem is the leader. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I mean, and it may not be the only problem, right? I, like there, there's a lot of problems <laughs> I'm stalking with someone just this week who their company is, is based in the Middle East. Um, their, their leadership is based largely in the Middle East. And, and that's uh, the, the cultural shift between the, um, the different regions that they have employees is pretty huge, like all the way around, all, all of the different countries, uh, because they've got a big pocket in the Middle East and then a big pocket in, in um, uh, sorry, in uh, Asia Pacific. And then they have a big population in the United States with like these three areas and they couldn't be more different culturally, right? And unsurprisingly, they clash pretty significantly in the way that they uh, approach things. And so like the leadership that's in the Middle East wants to be addressed by Sir, because it's a fairly paternalistic society. And, and then, you know, the <laughs> people in the United States have a completely different way that they want to be managed. Like they don't, they don't want to have to do this like very hierarchical reporting and, and just like, let me get my job done, man, kind of a thing. And then in, in Asia Pacific, it's completely different again you know, they're very focused on results and, and, and to them, it's almost meritocracy, right? Like if, if I'm performing, then give me what I need to be able to perform. Right. So, so it's, it's just interesting to see those differences yet their managers and their leadership have had no training around how to manage cultural difference. I mean, forget the added layer of COVID and the, the challenges that brings like just on any day, they don't know how to do that. Then you add in the complexity around COVID and it's just, a, it's a disaster. And, you know, and so the conversation we're having is like, well, what do we do about this? I'm like, well, first you acknowledge that it's a disaster and it's not completely your fault, but it's kind of your fault because you need to set your managers up for success and you failed to do that. So how do we then map from there? Right. So I think with all this, you got to have it starts training reckoning. as well. It sounds like they need some training pretty quickly as well. Oh yeah, and I think a lot of organizations do. And and one of the things that I think that COVID has done is it's it's really um, brought to light where there are deficiencies and gaps in organizations because again, from a remote, like when you're in person, you can kind of muddle your ways through some of that just by looking someone in the eyeballs, right? Which is probably why so many leaders want to get back to work, but. But when you're remote, you don't have that, right? And so you do have people who like, it, when they're listening to, and I'm sure my employees have done this too at some point, but when they're listening to a manager drone on, like they just flip their camera and go like, for the love of God, can you just shut up? You know, but- <laughs> Or they completely disconnect if they think they can get away with it, right? I mean, they're right. doing stuff on their phone or they're yeah. <laughs> looking at the stock prices. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's easy to be distracted. It, well, it is. And, and it, it, so you've got the distractive piece and then you have the, if you're not a compelling, charismatic and understanding leader, like your employees have even less reason to be engaged with you. Right. So it, it just highlights all of that. So from, and I'm kind of picking on leadership at this moment, but I think that's also true with cumbersome processes. You know, I, it, that when you have overly complicated processes in your organization, you know, there was a point in time where people just muddled their way through. It. And I think right now they're like, they check out like because they don't have to, like, you can't make me, I'm not going to actually see you. So you know. no, I did not fill out my TPS report. <laughs> yes. Anyway, 
Um, I do want to do a quick reset. Uh, if you're just now joining in, I'm talking with Robin Erickson, uh, conference board, fantastic research that's just come out. Uh, you will be able to see the link in the show description. So if you're listening, but you're not looking at the actual show description, I invite you to go back and click on the, the link to get to that research. Um, there's so much there, Robin, I want to make sure we cover all of the things that are important to you and that you really want to make sure, I'm sure it's all important to you, but the things that you really want to make sure that people are, are getting a hold of. So we've covered a decent gamut so far, but I know we've barely scratched the surface. So, so what would you like to talk about next? So, you know what, there's only one other, what I think significant piece of research that we haven't discussed yet, and that is around remote work. So we asked, um, how willing organizations were to hire full-time employees who work predominantly virtually and remotely. And before the pandemic, almost 50%, 48% said they weren't willing to hire virtual employees. Um, and only 5% said that they were willing to hire employees who were 100% virtual anywhere in the US or 100% virtual globally. And so now, um, over a year later, um, the statistics that we were looking at were April 2021, that number went down from 48% saying not willing to hire virtual employees. That went down to 13%. Oh, that's fantastic. And, yes. And so there's still about a 50% number of organizations who say, well, we're willing to hire virtual employees if they can occasionally commute into the office. But remember I said that in terms of being willing to hire virtually anywhere in the U.S. or 100% virtually globally, that was only 5%. That number has actually increased now a year later to 32%. And I think that that's because organizations are finding that their productivity is not necessarily decreasing um, with the pandemic. But the good news about that then is that it's a potential solution to the hiring difficulties, right, that organizations are having. And I actually think it will help retain some employees who don't necessarily want to go back to the workplace. And so um, I'm actually really happy to leave you on a somewhat positive note, which is that the more optionality you can provide your employees in terms of being able to work remotely, um, the, the bigger talent pool you'll have, the more affordable talent pool you might be able to have. Um, and uh, it might actually help with your retention and make it part of your employee value proposition. So that's, that's the last thing I wanted to make sure I, I mentioned to you today. Well, I'm, I'm very glad that you mentioned that. Um, I kind of want to dive into it a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so a couple things. One, I, I think that is a, a very positive thing. And I think for people who are looking at job boards right now and seeing you know, not everything is remote work, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that, um, that's probably very reassuring to them that, you know, okay, just keep looking, something's going to come up. But I think when you talk about the labor shortage, like when you spoke earlier about the labor shortage, which definitely does exist, uh, there are, are a significant number of jobs that are going unfilled each month because we can't find workers. Like you almost have to consider remote work to be able to get some of these jobs filled. But that does bring up an interesting, like my mind goes directly to, but that also means we have to reshape and rethink the way we look at resumes and the way we look at applicants and, and how we judge people. And, and how, the, what, what does your, what do your remote work processes, technologies, you know, people process and technology, all of that has to be reconsidered. No, you're exactly right. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I was talking with a client um, last week and, and, you know, bless them, they understand that the mentality needs to shift, right? But they've been very much, and this is uh, for uh, semi-skilled labor, you know, it's like, they want to know your last two years of employment that you've been with the same person and all of these things. Like, you can't do that anymore, guys. Like, you can, you know, guys and gals, like, this does not work. And again, to their credit, they're like, yeah, we understand that but it's been the way we've hired for the last 20 years. It's really hard to step out of those old patterns. And, um, and a friend of mine was, is uh, looking for work at a professional level um, and got an email yesterday about like, well, you know, why are you leaving in a short amount of time? You know, you've been there for less than a year. Why would you leave? And so my friend was like, well, I don't even know what to say to that. I, said, I think what you say to that is, hi, we've been in a global pandemic. And so it's not a have, good fit. Yeah. <laughs> people have taken jobs that they have subsequently realized was not a great move. And, and also, you know, like companies have changed, right? And so what may have been a fabulous fit for you pre-COVID as the company has evolved and shifted is no longer a fit for you. So we just, we have to, we have to stop asking some of these questions because it it doesn't really, it's not a good look for the company. It does make you look a little out of touch. Um, But for the workers, I think it also puts them in an unwinnable position, right? So on the one hand, you're saying we need talent, cybersecurity, name your salary, you know, and then on the other hand, it's like, well, but, but have you been in the same place for the last year? And what do your team dynamics look like? And are you good at coming into the office? You don't have to come all the time, but sometimes I'm like, man, it's, it's like the person that, okay, this is a horrible example, but like, I keep thinking about in my twenties, I went to do Weight Watchers and it was um, like very in vogue. And it was supposed to be like a good way to learn healthy eating habits, all these things. So, you know, I'm, I'm going with my little book and all of my point systems and all of the things I don't even remember how to do it anymore, but, but you know, I go in and the first, the first woman that's talking um, was just like telling us all of the reasons why this wouldn't work for her. Right. Like, hadn't I think she had just done like an initial way in like had not even started the program and she's talking about all of the reasons why it wouldn't work and she couldn't change and this is you know like like these things don't apply to her right and I feel like employers do that all the time like we want to be healthy and fit as employers but only if it fits this very narrow definition of how these things should be accomplished well I actually have a business example for you Excellent. Um, I, I, I did uh, not that Weight Watchers isn't interesting or, or relevant, but, um, but I did some research on alternative credentialing. Mm-hmm. And when we did some interviews for that report, we found that um, after, during the Great Recession, there were so many people that were unemployed and so many people applying for jobs because it got so easy to apply for a job with the, with the internet, right? All you had to do is push a button in some cases. So um, what happened is that um, many organizations programmed their applicant tracking system to only accept candidates with degrees. So it's a really easy filter. Does this candidate have a bachelor's degree? Mm-hmm. If they did, they weren't even considered. And so that was to keep the numbers down for organizations who had more candidates than they could manage. Well, what that did is it got rid of people who had prior experience in the job um, who might not have a degree in it. It got rid of a lot of the uh, vets who maybe had been doing that job at a higher level even in the military, but they didn't have a degree in it. And so our report 
basically says, look, if you're not already looking at alternative credentials, then you're going to limit the diversity of your workforce. And if you want to increase the diversity of your workforce, you've got to look at alternative credentials of which one is experience. But there are, there's a lot of other ways that people can show that they're, they're ready to do something, including the fact that now we have software that can actually do a day in the life and test someone to see how they would do in that job. So anyway, I, I, I'm excited to see where we go with all of this, but just definitely something for organizations you're talking about, they need to rethink, right? And they need to rethink, I think, all of their human capital talent strategies right now because the world has changed with COVID and we don't know where it's going to end up. Yep. And to go back to the, the thing that we talked about in the beginning, one of the first places to start is by listening and surveying your employees, like understanding what what experience do our employees have currently, you know, where, where are their gaps that we can help fill for them, but also, you know, where are we requiring things that maybe we don't need to, we went through a job description uh, project with a company last year, where, you know, step two for us, once we go through the legal process, is to hand it back to the employees and say, is this actually reflective of what you do? And it is fascinating how far off some of these things are, um, and then where they hit the nails on the head, right? And so, you know, where company, with a specific company was doing a really good job was in describing like what the company did in, with the community, their CSR efforts, the way that they collaborated with each other. What they actually did a really horrific job at was what kind of experience was needed to be able to do the job. And so, you know, and I think some of that is because we write these job descriptions and it's written, you know, initially by, you know, HR and maybe one manager who has a very specific way of looking at this role. Well, that manager leaves, moves on, goes somewhere else, whatever. You've got another manager that comes in, that role changes a little bit and changes a little bit and changes a little bit. The job description doesn't actually change along with it. It's not dynamic, it's static. And so then your requirements for these things stay static. And, and that's just not work. Like if, if you want a dynamic workforce because you are a dynamic business, then your qualifications should constantly be evolving as the role does too. Yes. Anyway, as always, it has been so lovely having you on drive-through. I am excited that you gave me a reason to bring you back again. Not that I really need a reason. I like hearing what's keeping you up at night, but to bring you back again um, in, in just a few weeks. So I guess we will be talking with you um, right after your report comes out. When is that slated to come out? Do you know? Can you share? Um, the title is Reshaping Employee Experience and Organizational Culture, Lessons from the Tumultuous Events of 2020 and 2021. And um, here's the teaser. We have six things that organizations should be thinking about as they uh, try to reconsider uh, what they're going to be doing with their talent strategies going forward. Okay, Robin, thank you so much. That's fantastic. Thank you again for being a guest. We look forward to having you on next time, um, which will be in late July to discuss your latest research. I can't believe you've got more coming out. Thanks again. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening to Drive Through HR.